You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. You are with Ken Vellante in the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And I'm very excited uh, this week uh, to have a guest, uh, Brad Volucian, who... um, uh, I encountered uh, uh, a new book he's written called um, Wax Pack, uh, baseball book uh, about uh, maybe a, a throwback activity, getting uh, a pack of baseball cards and the random component of which players in there. What's what's different is that Brad got a few of them, then picked one of those cards and uh, set out to try to visit uh each of the players uh in that pack and find out after baseball what they were doing this pack was from uh 1986 and uh, we're going to talk about that book and we're going to talk a a little philosophy a little bit of art a little bit of rhode island he's a rhode island native now on the west coast uh, very much like myself brad belukshin uh want to invite you to something rather than nothing podcast it's a great pleasure to have you on the show Thanks for having me on, Ken. Um, again, again, my pleasure. Uh, Brad, uh, first question, what were you like as a young kid? <laughs> I was uh, very quiet. Um, I got picked on a lot. Like my hardest years were middle school, uh, junior high, an awkward stage. I was, I was someone I was late to hit puberty and late to develop. Uh, so I had like a really squeaky voice and was really short and buck teeth and you know not exactly a a ladies man and also but I was also very studious and so I kind of got shoved into the nerd camp you know pretty pretty early on there um but I was also always someone that I think didn't follow the crowd I sort of had my my strong convictions and 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 never wanted to feel that I was being pressured to do anything. I, you know, just sort of thought for myself, very independent in that way. And I, and I had very, I'm always been grateful that I knew exactly what I was interested in. I had my, my passions were very clear from a young age and I was, I loved baseball. I loved islands, um, uh, which is something that ended up taking me all the way into my career. And, you know, I know it's kind of odd to have a favorite landform, but, <laughs> but I did. Um, I loved professional wrestling. So, you know, I had these very clear passions that I still consider my passions today. Yeah, that's that's um, it. it, it I, I, you know, I love your response. It's always interesting when I talk to guests as far as, you know, what how they, you know, viewed themselves as a young age. And, you know, sometimes it's like uh, somebody's a painter, you know, they were three years old and like kind of painting watercolors, you know, or. Right. Yeah, and, and and just then ended up just just doing it later on. But you grew up in um, Rhode Island, which I did as well. And if if I'm correct, you grew up in uh, in in Greenville, Rhode Island, which is how far is that from uh, Providence? It's about twelve miles northwest of Providence, up in the northern part of the state. Yeah. So, um, and, and during that time when you were younger, of course, you picked up. The, the the habit uh, of uh, collecting uh, baseball cards. When did that happen, and how how how'd you get into that? I wish I could remember the very first day I saw a baseball card, but I I can't. But I do remember that my dad was a huge baseball fan and got me into following baseball. 
and you know looking at the standings and the box scores and then it must have been him he brought home some cards he collected them as a kid then brought me home you know a pack of cards and said hey you know you might like these and that was that's all i needed to you know somehow the the cards made it so much more tangible and real to me and then you know i just became fascinated by by the players and their stats and organizing the cards and trading them and all of that yeah and how did you um did, did it end up becoming a little bit of a habit a little bit of an addiction i mean how do you support your addiction yeah. <laughs> my allowance wasn't that big but i was able to you know get get cards here and there and i i always liked in a way my it was convenient for my my wallet because my favorite players were the common cards, the kind of underdog guys whose cards were basically worthless. So I would be at my happiest buying a bunch of three cent common cards. Um, you know, I wasn't out to get all the star players. And so it was a pretty affordable hobby. Brad, I want to stop you right there. I, I mean, I uh, a really a, a good part of what I'd seen on your uh, website and the way you talk about this Um on a pause right there, I, I found it so interesting, um, you know, and, and you get this into the book of, uh, you know, I was just, I just kind of stumbled, my jaw dropped, and, you know, you had a favorite player, Don Carmen. I was like, hey, I kind of, you know, remember that name. But, you know, you're very clear in talking about, um, you know, the underdog, and, and it's definitely a, a great um uh, you know, a great passion of mine. Uh, you know, I work in a labor union and uh, when, when, when it came to baseball cards though, I just wanted to tell you my strange thing with it. I, I, I like the big stars. I really did. Um, like I remember when I first started collecting, uh, you know, Dwight Gooden, right. Who of course shows up in, uh, well, doesn't show up in, <laughs> you know, right. uh, you know, a chapter in your book. Um, but uh, I also like kind of the players that were personalities, even if they weren't that good, who yeah. did something kind of strange or were flamboyant or like kind of didn't follow the rules kind of, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I always found the baseball rules to be uh, some of the traditions are OK and some of them are just like uh, I think these traditions need to be, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> broken or something. Um but you you talk about uh, you know just being into regular you know those those common cards and you've you've kept that uh, throughout and uh, what's it like for what was it like for you talking about that when you know some of your heroes or some of your favorite players were ones that were tough for others to remember? Well, yeah, I mean, I never never wanted the players to think that I was like making fun of them because it was it was I was genuinely truly sincerely interested in and in, and in fans of those guys and you know i mean the reality is not those guys don't that the the underdog players don't have huge fan followings um but i think for me it was always and it's been a common theme in my life that that i always will go and root for the the group that is underprivileged or underdog or has less power you know, I've, I've seen that play out in so many parts of my life. Like when I I'm still adjunct faculty at a college here in Oakland, California, and the the inequities and the, you know, the, the disparities between how adjunct faculty are treated versus full time faculty uh, led me to become the, the rep for all the adjuncts in our union. So it's become a theme of mine that I I feel very strongly about justice and about um 
you know, helping those that are not in the position of power. Yeah, and I I, I really appreciate that, and and and, and definitely connect, uh, definitely connect to um the work that you do, and also wanted to thank you, you know, for your service and and, and helping um helping other other workers. Um, so you know, before we fully blast into some of the baseball stuff, I just wanted to ask you, you know, um, uh, you know, your process, uh, you, you know, your professor, um, and you have you know other interests, but. You know, now you're going to be interviewed and, you know, uh, identified as as a writer. What, you know, uh, writing is a particular art form. Um, for you, what what, uh, what art forms uh, do you enjoy? I mean, do you enjoy, um, you know, do you enjoy books? Um, what, what are your favorite types of art? Yeah, for me, so even though this, even though I didn't have a background in sports writing, I, I have actually been a writer for a long time. Um, I was, my first job out of college was working at Islands Magazine in uh, Santa Barbara as a fact checker and an editor. And then um, I've freelanced over the years, worked for the LA Times Science Desk as a reporter for a summer. Um, so I've always had this dual career of journalism and, and science. And uh, this is the first time, this is my first book, and it's sort of outside my usual area because I usually write about science. Um, but sure. my, my training and what I'm really passionate about is narrative nonfiction and creative nonfiction. And that's, you know, it's harder and harder to do that because there are fewer outlets that, that publish it. So it's become very financially, no, not very viable financially. Um, but... My my favorite form of art is is that creative nonfiction, and that's I was so happy to finally have a chance to do that in writing this book, um, and so and I think you know creative nonfiction is just is just one form of storytelling, and I think storytelling is something that almost all of us can can relate to or attracted to whether it's in movies or books. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm I love to read. I would say. Reading is my number one form of art consumption, maybe followed by by TV and movies. Um, and in terms of art, you know, I to me, it's it's really fun to be able to have these vastly different careers, because in my biology professor world, which is science, it's you know, it's science, um, very much left brain um, objective analysis. And in the writing, it's very much the right brain, the creative part, the artistic part. And so I like being able to, to toggle back and forth between those two realms of art and science. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I, it, it can be difficult. I, I see on the outside, you know, to try to define or explain, you know, uh, who, who are you? I think in the, in the book, uh, great, great picture. Uh, Rick Sutcliffe uh, kind of rolled up, and you're ready to interview him. And he's like, you know, what's your story, buddy? You know, like that type of thing. And yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's tough to it's 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 tough to explain. I um I had interviewed recently Rachel Balkovic, who's the uh, first female uh, hitting coach uh, in Major League Baseball history. Um, uh, working for the for the for the New York Yankees. Um, and um. You know, part of my looking at baseball was was always um, as I got older, I looked at it more as far as like the uh, art of hitting, you know, according to Ted Williams and some famous Japanese players. And, uh, 
you know, I also look at like at, at the art of pitching. But before I, before we get into some of that stuff, uh, what about the big question for you uh, on on art? Before we move on, what what is what is art uh, for you? <laughs> well, I think art is just expression, and um, it's it is how humans express themselves and their creativity. It's a form of communication. It's um, but it's it's personal. It's it's belief based. I think it's subjective. Um, you know, again, I and I'm I'm actually not a good person to talk about visual arts. I mean, I'm woefully incompetent when it comes to anything sort of visual art, spatially. Um, you know, my art, my artistic talents are more limited to the the writing world. But but in terms of, I mean, I think that that the, in the way that science is a, is a way of understanding the world using objective evidence and the weight of objective evidence, art is unburdened by that expectation. And that's what makes art so, so freeing. And so art is emotional. I don't, I don't, you know, it's emotion is, is, um, is sort of the foundation of art. Whereas there's, you know, there is no room for an emotion in science in terms of the actual data. Yeah. And, um, one, I, 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 one way I had in talking about this was with um, recently. I'm not sure why I'm referring to all these different episodes lately. I guess I've done enough episodes, but um, <laughs> Dr. Erin McDonald uh, was uh, one of my guests, and and she, you know, she's a scientist, PhD, space science. She explains, you know, dripping black holes and multiverse, uh, but she's also a consultant creatively on science fiction shows. So it's very interesting to look at. As you try to navigate, you know, the technical, the techne of uh, of science and uh, in, in in with art and trying to meld those two is, you know, what areas are they overlap and you can speak cohesively uh, about them. And right. uh, it sounds like with your work in trying to create things, you you kind of navigate that terrain a lot. Well, I think I mean, I think art and science are fundamentally different, but that doesn't mean that they can't coexist and, and work together. Right. I think too often we get in trouble in science when we forget that we're all human. Scientists are humans doing science. So the science itself, we know we strive to be objective, but ultimately, you know, we, we make mistakes and we, we have our biases that seep into our work. And I think also with science, science does no good if it's not applied to society and and has some you know in it, science needs to inform policy in order to um to to be meaningful and effective and sometimes the application of science to policy and society requires more art you know in, in the form of how you communicate and how you interact with people that's those are all the sort of you know, the skills that make a great science communicator, which is very different from a great scientist. Um, and from the art side, you know, if, I mean, you look at baseball, which I think is this sort of beautiful blend of art and science. Um, baseball has had a huge influx of, of science with analytics. And, sure. and, yet, and yet the game, if the game was just about analytics, it wouldn't have the, the power that it does. And so there's a sort of, there's an importance of art in baseball as well. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's, that's a, that's a, just a great point. Um, 
yeah, the rise in analytics and the science of it. Um, yeah, the science and art right there. Well, let's get in. Let's get into the into the baseball. And I know you've been, uh, you know, you, the the book came out. Waxback came out. Um, I believe might have been uh, right at the beginning of April. Very recently, yeah, right? Uh, last few last few weeks. Um, happy to see it's shown up as on the LA Times uh, nonfiction list. Correct. Yeah, I just found out this morning. I was super excited. I got a an email and said, "Oh, you're on the the bestseller list for the LA Times," which I had no idea. So I was uh, very excited to see that. Especially, very, because, I mean, the story. I don't know if we'll get into this, but the story of the book getting published itself became an underdog story and dealing with all the rejection and all of that. So it's well, very yeah. Talk about that. Talk about that right now, Brad. Let's launch into the wax pack. Tell tell the story to wax pack. How did it come about? Sure. Well, I mean, it started just as an idea in 2014 to to write a book based on a pack of cards. And it's pretty simple premise. You could write a lot of different books with that conceit. Uh, and, I, and I tinkered with different ideas like, oh, maybe I'll write about what happened in the 86 season told through the perspectives of the different players. But then I realized really the I thought the best possible book would be one that was road trip based and that was about well, what happens to these guys when they're done playing? And also it off, it provided an opportunity for me to insert myself as a character in the narrative. And I think one thing I realized in doing this, in writing the book was how much, how I'm, I think at my strongest as a writer, when I'm a participant in the story. Um, I mean, I'm not so interested in writing just straight memoir, but that sort of blend of memoir and, and reportage in a narrative uh, nonfiction context is sort of my sweet spot. Um, and so I had the idea, I got the pack, I did all the research and contacted the players. I mean, that, that whole part, while it was challenging, went off really well. The trip was fantastic in 2015. And I, because I had had so much interest from agents to represent me, and when you're trying to get a nonfiction book deal, you basically need to have an agent if you want to get any kind of decent financial deal from the, the big publishing companies, of which there are basically five that control all the publishing in New York. They call them the big five. And so um, my agent, we went out with the project and then started getting rejected. And then that sort of started a, a couple of years of writing proposals and rewriting and changing agents and all in all getting rejected 38 times, which was really demoralizing. Um, because I never felt like the rejections were, were based on the quality of the work. I mean, they even said as much. They were like, well, it's a great idea and great writing, but um, you don't have 100,000 Twitter followers and, you know, no one knows. Yeah. Who, and you don't have a platform. So we're not going to basically take a chance on you. And that's all I wanted was someone. I mean, I knew I mean, I was an unproven commodity and it would take a risk. But I really believed, you know, I think I'm self-aware enough to know when I have something that's good or not good. And, you know, I have plenty of stuff that's not good. Um, but I I just never stopped believing. I had this strong conviction that if I could just get a chance to write the book that was in my head, it would it would work. Um, and finally, the University of Nebraska Press um, was willing to take a chance on me and signed, you know, signed a deal with me. Um, but it was for very, very little money. I mean, they're a very small publisher. They can't afford to offer big book deals. So um, basically any chance of making this at all financially viable are, are based on you know selling copies now and, and royalties. So to see the book 
hit a bestseller list is is feels like great vindication. And that was Nebraska. That was uh, University of Nebraska. So, uh, so, 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 Brad uh, originally from Rhode Island, living out in Oakland, and uh, University of Nebraska comes through. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, you know I've never heard it put that way, but that's a great you know here you got East Coast, <laughs> and the West Coast, and the and the center. Yeah, you got the uh, you got the call up from Nebraska, and that's it, it, it's it's good. I mean, uh, it's it's fantastic that the 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 book is out there, and and you know for for listeners, I mean, I I've read the book. It, it, it's a great book. It's a sweet spot for me. Um, you know, nineteen eighty six baseball cards. Uh, you know, it, it, but you know, it's it's very clear, uh, Brad, in the in the in the book about you know you say you're not doing straight memoir. Um, but, but, you know, you're talking about, you know, your relationship to your heroes in there, in, 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 there's a certain randomness within the pack, your relationship to, you know, friends, family, and, and, and your, your father. Um, did, did you feel that the book really, um, ended up being about, you know, all of that, or did you see? Were you surprised as something developed that you were writing and be like, "I didn't mean to write about this, but here we go." Well, some of the some of the themes came out as I met the players, like the father son theme of you know how many guys had had really bad relationships with their fathers. I didn't know that going in, so that became something. Um, but I knew that I wanted to write a book that would go beyond baseball, that would be very personal, and that would ultimately, hopefully, engage the reader emotionally and, and in a way that, that they would resonate because the reader could relate to these sort of universal themes. I mean, I think everyone has, has made a mistake and has had their heart broken and has been in love and has experienced fear and, and rejection. And, you know, so the way if I could use my story and the baseball player stories to get at those larger themes, I felt like that would allow the reader to emotionally invest in the whole narrative. And, um, and so I always had very, I mean, it was always very ambitious. I remember in the early stages when I was sort of going back and forth with the editors and the agents and the gatekeepers and publishing, they kept pushing me to make it more straight baseball. And I kept saying, it's not really a baseball book. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's really, I, I get it. It's really ambitious and risky because it's mixing travel and sports and memoir in this sort of unconventional way. And, you know, most sports related books are not like this. Um, right. I felt right. That, that was, that was the void that I was trying to fill. And I, they may have thought there was no market for it, but I always believed that, that there was because it's a book that taps into your emotion and it must have been it must have been quite I don't I want I don't know want to speak for you I mean but quite the tension as you said it was difficult to have this you know book see light and then you want to control you know what 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 the darn book is um, that must have taken some time in in dealing with you know you want to get it's that dilemma you want to get the book out there you want it to be true to you but you also have to you know understand that you don't control all elements of it right well i think i mean so when i was facing my 38th rejection i my my agent at the time actually said to me i think we've reached the end of the road here and i said i don't think so and i that's when i went off i actually ended up not even having an agent with nebraska um and 
to Nebraska's credit, they gave me the freedom and the space to write the book I wanted to write. And I don't know, at a bigger publisher, maybe that would have been more contentious. But I'm always grateful to my editor, Rob Taylor, and the people at Nebraska, because they they said, OK, you know, we trust you. You go do it. And it, I'm glad that I was able to, to do that. OK. And then and the and the and the, the road trip portion of it, the book itself, you get into uh, your Honda, right? Adjunct professor. You say, I'm all right. I'm going to start. I'm going to start. So. So just, you know, for, for, for the listeners without, you know, giving away, you know, all the elements of the book, I, again, I recommend the book to, to the listeners. Um, fantastic book. I actually downloaded it on, um, uh, a nook, which I hadn't used for years. So it was nostalgic going That's back the, about the, Bar- the Barnes and Noble thing. Yeah. Yeah. The Barnes and Noble nook. So it was nostalgic for me going back to 2014 to download it on the nook and then, uh, nostalgic to travel back to, to, to 86 but you get in your um you get in your uh your honda and and you and you start your trip so to to you know to the level you want to share tell folks what what you know what what happens you get in your honda you start visiting the players what happens <laughs> well 11,341 miles of road in in seven weeks um it was basically you know i'd planned the itinerary in advance but you know, you never know what's going to happen. So uh, I started going down Central Valley of California, down to Southern California, and then just drove across with a bunch of zigzags. And I would get into a town and, you know, meet up with a player. And I would I would try to um, try to vary the environment in which I met the player for the for the narrative sake. So, for example, Randy Reddy, we go bowling and go to the gym and um, Rick Sutcliffe took me around his neighborhood where he grew up and his high school and I watched Kung Fu movies with Gary Templeton. So it was, it was, and it was fun to do a lot of different things with, with the players. And then when the, a few of the players that were more famous did not want to talk to me, those chapters are about the rogue and kind of unorthodox tactics that I use to try to find them. And those chapters are kind of entertaining, I think. And, um, so, uh, for folks who might not be familiar with, with baseball cards, I believe in that year, there would have been 15 cards, right? Mm-hmm. How many players did you, uh, did you end up visiting? So there were of the 15, one of those cards with a checklist, one of them had passed away. So for him, I went and met up with his cousin and his son. So that's 13 of the 13. I think I, let's see, I got extensive time with nine of them briefly met another one and so what there were three that i never really got to to meet i was uh, as i mentioned i'm from uh, Pawtucket, rhode island with the Pawtucket red sox actually i think i might say i don't know if this is their last year they're moving um i think they're gone yeah yeah they're moving to uh wista they moved to wista big controversy from where i'm from but Pawtucket red sox are the triple a the highest level before you get to the major leagues um and uh, a famous uh family friendly venue in in Pawtucket, rhode island where you actually i think you ended up there for a bit in the in the boat yeah, journey exactly. yeah what yep. were your impre- what were your impressions of uh mccoy stadium in Pawtucket, rhode island well, it's funny because I went to McCoy many times as a kid on class trips. And, you know, the Paw Sox were like just a fun, cheap night out. But 
when you're a kid, you don't, you know, you don't see the world in the same way as you do with your adult eyes. And so coming back and seeing it in my mid thirties, I, I remember just being struck by how, how much of a, of a time capsule it seemed to be. And that like, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're in this very blue collar suburban neighborhood and all of a sudden you hit a minor league baseball stadium. You know, it's not like it's surrounded by a lot of retail and, you know, and sort of a modern look. Yeah. And, and I love that. I love that. It's just this neighborhood ballpark, uh, very sleepy, um, you know, hasn't changed a lot. And so yeah, I got, to, I went there to meet up with Richie Hebner, who was, uh, coaching a minor league team that was in town to play the Pawtucket Red Sox. Yeah. And, um, I had, I, yeah, that's right. Of course you had been to a few games. I had gone to a lot and I uh, mentioned in, in, in a separate, uh, just a message to you, um, in 81, there was the longest baseball game in you in, in baseball history uh, that my dad uh, took us to. I think we were there to about the 11th of the 33 innings. Yeah, um, I, I remember as a kid, we had the they would give away a, a the cup that you would get your soda in was. Oh, the, my gosh. Yeah. The 30, <laughs> 32 innings and then they resumed the game another day. Right. Yeah. And let me tell you just a quick thing about, you know, McCoy Stadium. And, and I had a my brother and I were really big into getting autographs and access in Pawtucket was really good. So it was really a special thing. I don't know if you remember. I mean, sometimes you'd have a really a top notch major league baseball player, you know, on a rehab assignment uh, or, you know, up and coming stars that um, it isn't like after the game ended that, Everybody was accessible, right? I mean, it's baseball. Right. Some some guys are really big, and you know they want to they want to go to the bar, you know, like or yeah. you know they want to get out after a long game. But um, a lot of players, a lot of players, uh, stuck around and uh, spent the time. And uh, for me, the baseball experience was you know prior to the game, uh, getting a lot of autographs, yeah. and then then after the game was really a five to six hour yeah. uh, trip. Um, and uh, so you, you went quite a few times, and uh, I'd imagine you had a nice experience going to Pawtucket, the, to the Pawtucket Red Sox games when you were younger, right? Yeah, it's, it's funny. In the book, I actually went and, and went before the game and saw a bunch of those, a bunch of the fans getting autographs. And, you know, that's a scene that I think is just part of the baseball experience. Yeah. Um, well, one of the questions I have... Um, on 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 baseball and uh you know you're you're an educated guy with a phd um you know a, a, a lot of different interests i've always found baseball to be you know just a top subject for me and um i have a lot of idiosyncratic non-traditional views uh on baseball myself one of the things i think baseball does in general uh regardless is to attract uh, thinkers who think about the game. It seems to be a sport that uh, brings in a lot of elements of culture, a lot of analysis, a lot of thinking. Why, why do you think baseball attracts, you know, thinkers like yourself? <laughs> well, I think, I think it's, it's been around forever. I mean, it's the oldest sport of the major sports. Um, and I think that it's really that that it's slow. I mean, I think a lot of the reasons why people don't like it are the reasons why people that are, 
you know, maybe more literary or, you know, as you see, you know, wanted sort of deep thinkers. They like baseball because it, it provides all this time to think and analyze and um, reflect. And I think baseball is the ideal sport for building relationships because of all that downtime. And there's also, you know, there's a lot of unseen strategy um, that serious fans are aware of. And of course, it's a very quantitative game in terms of all the, the statistics and the analysis. And so people get really into that. Um, I mean, I'm not as interested in in the, the granular details of all that, but I think um, the, the, this, the sport's uh, again, it's sort of languorous pace is is very conducive to a, a literary um, feel to it. It's something to do between innings almost, right? Even between pitches, I mean, yeah. <laughs> between pitches, right? Um, there's a component. There's a component, um, you know, in 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 the book uh, that 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 struck me as as as, as a big theme and. Uh, I think it fits into a kind of popular baseball stereotype, right? The guy on the road, right? Yeah. Um, the, the 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 stress on the family, and I had the, the weird anecdotes, you know, like around the uh, when, when I talk about the it sounds when I was talking about you know the autographs getting the autographs at the at after the game, it sounds you know like you know quaint and nice, and it really is. But there was also the John after the game with prostitutes with them for. Um, for the players, it was very, it was very clear, like in, and there's this, uh, you know, it's kind of like the under, the yeah. underbelly of, you know, Pawtucket <laughs> that was readily apparent where I grew up. But um, you, you talk about relationships in the book and you talk about, you know, guys on the road. I think they always say you're on the road. So even after they might've retired, they would be on the road. They'd be uh, moving up through the coaching ranks in single A or double A I mean, that become uh, a huge piece of as far as the tension on family, the stress on family or what family is. That seemed to be a huge theme that just really emerged from uh, from from your from from your book. Yeah, no, um, I think that's, you know, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, you know, the road trip motif, I think, works really well for the book because of the fact that baseball is this game that's so associated with the, all the travel and being on the road and, you know, it just brings up all these stresses and challenges that um, are very, very difficult to deal with. So right now, um, one of the questions I have, uh, you know, given the, the, the radical changes in the world with the, the coronavirus in uh, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, what is the role of, of, of you know art um, or books or or sports in a in in, in a pandemic uh, you know a lot of baseball fans are waiting for baseball but of course it has to be safe on a level you know that 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 we we would we would understand what do you find the role right now for you know say uh, you know sports right now um, you know in a pandemic as far as what people need and what we can expect. Yeah, I think we we I personally uh, am not a big fan of rushing any of these sports back, including baseball. I would be fine if there was no season this year. And and I miss the game a lot. I think I really I do think that that baseball is this 
um, salve and this, you know, this, this very healing thing in our lives. But the idea of, you know, bringing the game back when clearly we don't really have a, a handle on, on the epidemic and the pandemic and, you know, the testing really isn't there yet. And so, you know, I just don't, I don't feel good about them trying to rush back just to assuage people's stress. Um, not to mention that like the, the ideas of having no fans and having like these, you know, not the traditional leagues. I just think it's a, it's unnecessary. I think it's the owners really just wanting to save some money. Um, you know, they're, they're going to lose their shirt just like everyone else is losing their shirt right now. Um, so while I recognize the vital importance of, of sports in our society, I don't really advocate rushing them back. Yeah. Well, I want to, the, uh, I want to talk just Oakland for a second. Oakland Coliseum, um, has a bad rap, um, had a bad rap before I went to it. I, I love the Oakland Coliseum for very particular reasons for me, including the price to get really yeah. nice seats. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what? Uh, so I, I, I love the Oakland Coliseum. I've been a few times when I moved to the West Coast, I started going. I'm like, ah, I like this place. Uh, what are your impressions of the Oakland Coliseum? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I talk about it in the book. Same reasons you do. And I mean, to me, a baseball field is a baseball field. I mean, yeah, it's nice. I mean, I, you know, again, maybe if you, you have a, you're going with a, a family and you want entertainment, but to me, the entertainment is on the field. So, um, I'm fine with it being kind of a dump. Um, and as you say, you can go really cheap. I mean, last year I had the A's access and you get tickets to all 81 games for 280 bucks. You know, it's incredible. Whoa. Um, yeah. And, and half off on all your concessions. So it's, it's a great deal, and I would actually go up in the in the nosebleeds and have like a whole section to myself and and really enjoy it, because I mean for me it's also like I I'm happy going to a game by myself. It's very meditative for me. I also like going with people, but it's an entirely different experience when I go with other people. I, <laughs> I uh, we have a, a we share a peculiar habit when it comes to movies and uh, baseball games. I like the I like the solitude, so. Uh, that that's great, and you can find some big spots. You know, I think maybe when uh, Tampa Bay is playing in Oakland, you can have some wide stretches of real estate over there at the Coliseum. Sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. So one of the one of the questions I have is a little bit uh, bigger question. Um, related to your, uh, you know, creative process, but um, you know, you're a writer. Um, a researcher, you ever step back and say, in particular with this book, why, why, why am I doing this? Why, why do you create? Hmm. Well, I think for me, it, it is, it's what I, it's, it's, it's curiosity. It's like, you know, inveterate curiosity. That's just inside that I of me and I have these I have this passion for learning and for finding things out um that fulfills me I you know it's that 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 process of learning and answering questions um brings me happiness I really enjoy that that process um you know I, I think 
where I, I, I like then sharing that with other people and hope that other people uh, relate to whatever it is that I create. Um, but it's, it's really coming from, you know, this sort of whatever it is that I happen to be passionate about wanting to, there's the element of wanting to find out, but then also wanting to share it in a, in a way that is artistic and that resonates with other people. And I think ultimately I'm, I am driven or I am, yeah, I'm driven in my, in my writing career more by, and even in my scientific career, more by sort of knowledge for the sake of knowledge than anything that's overly applied. You know, in my, in my scientific research, there are scientists that are out there trying to solve big problems, whether it's, you know, pandemics or climate change and you know, all these things are vitally important, but I've always been honest about the fact that my interests are not so much applied in that way as they are uh, creating new knowledge and and I, and understanding the world for the sake of it, which is a very kind of abstract, you know, kind of uh, touchy-feely motivation. But I think it's also necessary. It's part of our human condition to to want to learn and understand and be curious. And I think it's still vitally important, even if it's not, you know, solving these direct problems. Yeah. Um, I got, uh, I got two or three more pitches for you, Brad. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You have to be ready at the plate. Okay. Um, uh, grew up in Rhode Island. You remember Rocky point? Sure. Yeah. I remember the commercial. I still can think of the jingle in my head of the commercial. Rocky point. It's so exciting. We got a, I'm going to have a guest coming up who's going to talk about the next couple of weeks, the urban legends of uh, Rocky Point. One of the things I didn't know is that it actually started or was built in 1846 or something outrageous like wow. that. Yeah, wow. like like the oldest. It closed in the 90s, but um, uh, it definitely it definitely made me realize why there are so many urban legends and haunted stories about <laughs> about Rocky Point. Uh, yeah. It's an institution uh, for Rhode Islanders. Um so uh, here, here's 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 uh, here's here's the slider coming at you. Why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> Why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah, that's now that's now we're getting into some real you know, <laughs> philosophical stuff here. Um, well, I <laughs> how do we know that there's that there's that there isn't nothing? I don't know. I mean, it's I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's. It's an un unanswerable question, and, and maybe that's the point, right? That is, I tell you, I've been waiting for that answer for a while. It's mm -hmm. one of the identified unanswerable questions in some traditions. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, one of the, one of the things um, one of the things just to drop back into what what you were saying. One of the uh, when you're talking about some of the. Uh, you know, players that are your heroes or you're really interested in that were the common cards. Uh, I remember a quote, and I'm paraphrasing, it was from a pitcher, pitched for the Red Sox for a little while. He also pitched for the Baltimore uh, Orioles for a while, Mike Boddicker. Oh, yeah. And when Mike Boddicker pitched for the Red Sox, he went on a stretch. I don't know when the heck it was, but he went on a stretch where he was unhittable. You know, when pitchers, yeah, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine games or a season like uh, Doc Gooden, where you, you just can't hit him. And they were talking to him. He threw a lot of junk balls. You know, he threw every every type of pitch imaginable. 
and they said, what's, what's going on? I mean, you just seem to be in some sort of zone. And he says, I knew I was in the zone during this streak because during one of the games towards the late innings, I was making up pitches. (laughs) (laughs) He was, he was, he was so in, he was so into it. He was putting his hand on the ball in a different way, and it still worked for him. <laughs> ultimate confidence that there, yeah. <laughs> Mike Boddicker, I'll never, I'll never forget that. Um, the why is there something rather than nothing may be an unanswerable question. Um, uh, Brad uh, uh, Baluchian uh, here. Um, Brad, can you, uh, in wrapping up here, can you uh, tell folks um, you're interested in a lot of stuff, but tell 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 them how to connect. Uh, w- with you, with the book, uh, with your, you know, attempts to, you know, popularize science, uh, you know, your science writings, you know, all that other stuff that you, you do. Can you point listeners in the right direction to connect with the work you do? Yeah, sure. I think the easiest place is to go to waxpackbook.com. And from there, you can link out to my uh personal websites and read more about my projects. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Waxpack Book and I'm pretty active there. So yeah, I, I love to hear from from readers and answer questions. And, you know, it's one of the more rewarding things now that the book is done is to be able to actually hear people's feedback. So I encourage people to get in touch. Yeah, uh, Brad, um, I, I want to say, as, as you know, uh, as, as I told you before, I was really excited to have you a guest uh, on the show. And, you know, when you put something out there, like you have a book that is, you know, personal and about, you know, a topic that people enjoy and, uh, you know, has nostalgic elements, there's a lot of power um, uh, to those words. And, you know, just for you as an author, I mean, just, just to, to pause and say, uh, it's it's a great great experience um, to read about some of the common elements of you know the the human experience and uh, you know about life and family that's that's in the book, but also just to be talking about you know things that you forgot, baseball players that you forgot, anecdotes that you forgot, and I think your book, you know, kind of pulls all these uh, pieces together. So it's really a significant work for me. And I just wanted to, you know, sincerely and directly thank you for, you know, your journey. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, five, six years for you to, you know, get it out there. Uh, 38 rejections. I, I tell you, brother, I don't, I, I, I don't know how to, you know, I try my best with meditating. What I don't know how to handle, you know, four or five rejections, 38 a lot. So I appreciate your perseverance in putting this out and, uh, Really applaud you and um, and uh, you know showing up on the New York Times you know nonfiction list. Uh, wish you a lot of success with this book. Um, it's 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 great work you're doing, brother. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, and I appreciate that. You know, I've, I've done a lot of interviews, but a lot of them ask the same questions over and over. So I really appreciated you coming. You know, having some really original questions and thinking more broadly about. Um, you know, art and and beyond just the scope of the book and what it's about. So it's always fun to have a conversation about these bigger things. Uh, thanks, thanks again, Brad. Uh, uh, great, great, great luck and uh, fortune uh, in your efforts. 
And, the, you know, as, as, as we hope and cross our fingers and pray or whatever anybody wants to do about things, you know, becoming back to normal with travel or when safeguards are in place, I hope, um, you know, that the, whatever the equivalent of, you know, the road trip and, and, and what you could do in the future, uh, um, you know, comes, comes about for you. But again, uh, deep thanks, Brad Belucian, uh, author of The Wax Pack. Um, uh, thank you for stopping by something rather than nothing. And um, really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care, brother. Thank you. All right. You too. You are listening to something rather than nothing.